Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Honestly, there's not much left of great import to David's career that doesn't fall into categories either of border skirmish, with whom else but the Philistines, or of failed usurper. He has no lasting military peace, as Nathan predicted. I will say that David gives me credit for his deliverances, and as he's done in the past, he sets his I give credit to Yahweh to music. It's right there in the owner's manual in 2 Samuel 22. It's also copied into the nation's hymnal where it appears as Psalm 18. Go ahead and read it in either place. Just a few lines here, though, so the slackers who aren't going to look it up see a few of these beautiful lines. Yahweh is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to Yahweh who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. 2 Samuel 22, 2-4 This is the place to live in, friend, theologically, psychologically, and emotionally giving me the responsibility to take care of your precious behind, and then giving me the resulting credit when I come through. It's all right there coming from David's lips and heart at the moment. But it's a moment he just can't stay in all the time. And you know just how he feels. You've been caught up in a time of sincere worship of me and known deep in your heart how much I love you and how much I am determined to make a remarkable life for you. How happy and fulfilled you feel when you're in sync with me and walking on the way. In the very least, you've had a moment of real clarity and seen what's truly important in life, and determined to spend your time on the important things instead of the urgent ones. But then... The week happens and pulls you away from that center. You end up thinking, feeling, saying, doing things that are so you-centered, it seems impossible for you to have been in that moment of worship and clarity any time recently. And as we saw in David's decline from major moment of covenant, offspring on throne forever, and so on, to adultery and murder, it's a gradual shift. The thing to do, friend, is to catch yourself early in the shift away from me, to notice before a week is up that you haven't checked in with us lately, to cultivate regular reminders for yourself of, well, everything in terms of what we are going for in this life on the way. And so the mostly good King David, who's capable of penning such lofty words of praise and thanksgiving, is also capable not long after of listening to a darker voice. And let's unpack that for just a moment. 
The account of this episode in 2 Samuel 24 attributes David's temptation to me, while its parallel in 1 Chronicles 21 points instead directly at our adversary, to whom the chronicler refers as Satan. The chronicler is writing at a later date when Israel is firmly ensconced in monotheism. This allows us to lower the veil ever so slightly on some of the things going on in the spirit realm without the risk of furthering the thought of other gods. As we discussed earlier in a similar moment with Saul, until that transition is made, supernatural intervention is seen as coming solely from me as the only supernatural option on the menu, such as this instance in 2 Samuel 24. Clearly, though, we are nearing the end of at least that tutorial period. The core issue really is the old trademark shift of focus off of us and onto self, off of our greatness and the greatness of our care for you, onto your own greatness and self-determination. In David's case this time, in another episode of Sin you may not have heard about, it probably starts with David looking at a map and thinking what a wonderful nation he's built for himself here, and wouldn't it be neat to know just how many people he's got in his kingdom now. After all, that kind of information could be useful in terms of taxation, or of knowing how big an army he could put together for even greater military conquests, or just to trigger a warm, fuzzy, pat-yourself-on-the-back feeling over what a great king you are. You've not ruled a nation. Well, one of you has. But most of you have played Monopoly or some other such game involving currency, chips, or the like. And you know the difference between counting your assets in order to evaluate and form strategy versus just to know how badly you're beating the other gals or guys at the table. There's a planning-driven counting, and there's a gloating-driven counting. David's doing the latter. He calls for a census. You know the census is improper if Joab isn't in favor of it. The man doesn't have a spiritual bone in his body, and even he knows it's a bad idea. Uh, we're in 2 Samuel 24.3 now. Ever the order-taker, with one tragic example, Joab obeys and launches a tour of the nation and takes the army's commanders with him to help with the evaluative count. They're not counting everyone, just the men old or young enough to draw a sword and fight with it, of course. Your Habitat's version of this is it's requiring young men of ages 18 to 25 to register with the government should the need arise to build a great army quickly, which would be known as a military draft, also known as conscription, which is still practiced by a majority of nations in your time. The fact that Joab and his commanders come back with a heady headcount of 1.3 million men of fighting age in the nation is immaterial. Sure, that's a nice number. But David isn't looking for strategic information because he perceives a new military threat of some kind. This is all about his pride from start to finish. And though I don't want to bore you with obvious points, You'll again recall that at several very important junctures in his career, 
we're careful to point out that David inquired of Yahweh for this or that. Well, there definitely are no inquiries sent our way this time around either. And so David is again in hot water. He's ridden the downward spiral of pride and self away from us again. The form he has chosen for this sin of pride to take also chooses the consequence for that very sin, and a good number of the people he was so proud of numbering for himself begin to die by the thousands. The high number he was so proud of doesn't last very long at all. When the agent of pestilence reaches the boundary of Jerusalem, I restrain him, for in that moment a highly motivated David confesses that he alone has sinned and done wickedly, asking that I extend mercy to the innocent, which I am only too happy to provide. I send word to David through his auxiliary prophet advisor, Gad. Uh, Gad's the one who, way back in David's flight from Saul, warned him to leave the land of Judah in 1 Samuel 22.5. Gad obviously doesn't spend as much time with the king as his co-prophet Nathan, but Gad is a handy fellow to have around for such a time as this. I send word through Gad that now would be a good time to make nice with some sacrifices. These are not to be made at the tabernacle, however, but in the exact location that my angel has stayed his hand, at the high ground threshing floor of a fellow named Arauna at Jerusalem's border. He's a good-hearted Jebusite who was able to remain at peace with the Israelites as they took possession of his town of Jebus and transformed it into their new capital city of Jerusalem. I really like Arauna. He's a humble, generous fellow who's understandably nervous at the sight of the king and his company walking up the hill towards his place. He throws himself down with his face to the ground before David and asks, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? In response, David says he's there to buy his threshing floor in order to erect an altar to me for sacrifices in order to ward off further pestilence and thank me for sparing Jerusalem. And here's where I really get to liking Arauna. He offers his own hard-working oxen as the sacrifices, and tells David to use his tools as the firewood, all as a gift to the king and to me. David rightly rejects the farmer's sacrificial generosity. Arauna has not sinned against me. David has. The cost must be paid by the sinner, and David counters the Jebusite's generous offer with a very generous price in silver with which to purchase the land. And thus, in one fell swoop, the sacrifices are made that atone for David's sin and avert further consequences thereof, plus the ground is purchased by David upon which something special will get built. That house he was keen on building for me earlier on will finally be built in not too long a time on that exact spot by his son. The parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21, 18-22 comes right out and says that the threshing floor purchased will become my front porch, or close to it. Wouldn't you know, I let David be a part of that project after all. His time is nearly up, 
and this is the event in David's life with which the book of Samuel ends. David has been and always will be as good an example as you can look to in the owner's manual. He's at his best when he's trusting in me, checking in with me, following my instructions, and then giving me the credit for the success he gains by doing so. He's a man running after me and my heart just as you can. He's also entirely human and makes human mistakes when he breaks from partnering with me. He lets his prideful selfishness harden his heart to be capable of terrible, destructive sin. But then he shows you how to repent of it all and keep moving forward, even more grateful than you were before. Because of this, David gets more ink in Tom and in this project than even Moses, and I hope you've taken in a good deal of the lessons David has to offer. I found him chasing sheep out in a field. Don't miss that shepherding theme in both him and Moses and others now. I have made him a name just as great as Moses, or Abraham's, making good on my covenant promise to all of them. The whole story up to now really has been building to this man after my own heart, my flawed, faithful David. And as we've lined out before, the Abraplan very powerfully pivots on David, launching the rescue of all humanity into the future to be fulfilled and realized at just the right time. Take heart then, friend, if you feel like you're being ignored somewhere, mired in tasks beneath your abilities. You may not be tending sheep overnight, but you may know what it feels like. If it hasn't yet, Know that my call will come for you. Trust in me as David has, and there is no limit to what you and I can do on the way together. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.